Hello, I'm Alexander Rose, the executive director of the Long Now Foundation. When I first met Jenny O'Dell, she was working at the San Francisco Dump. That is, she was the artist-in-residence at Recology San Francisco, where she made art from the collected detritus of the Bay Area. In general, Jenny's work takes a critical eye to the mundane, using her powers of observation to more deeply understand the proximate world that surrounds us all. You might be familiar with her first book, How to Do Nothing. In that book, she presented her guide to resisting the attention economy, working against the pressure towards productive use of time that can feel ever-present in our society. In this talk, Jenny O'Dell focuses on our relationship with time itself, drawing on the insights from her new book, Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock. Jenny refers to the book as a panoramic assault on nihilism. It's a book that feels deeply aligned with the work that we're doing at Long Now to promote long-term thinking in the broader culture. Jenny argues that our current commodified and regimented understanding of time comes from a pretty specific historical movement of capital extraction, and makes the case that we would all benefit from taking a step back and considering different perspectives on time. The book takes us on a journey that travels through a San Francisco Bay Area lens and draws inspiration from the natural world and different human cultures with very distinct ways of thinking about time. Before we go beyond the clock with Jenny O'Dell, a quick note. All of the Long Now Foundation's support comes from our donors and members. If you're already a member, thank you. Your support means the world to us. If not, please consider going to longnow.org join and becoming the newest member of Long Now. It only takes a few minutes to set up, and after that, you'll be connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. Without further ado, let's hear from Jenny O'Dell on Saving Time. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you to The Long Now for hosting me. And besides the fact that there's a lot of overlap between what I write about in my book and the type of thinking that The Long Now does, um, this event is really meaningful for me because my work is very based in the Bay Area, and this is a Bay Area institution. Um, this is also only the third in-person event I've done since the beginning of the pandemic. <laughs> so I'm just so glad that we could all be here together. This book published today, which means I've been doing a lot of interviews. And one of the questions that I get asked is why I chose to write about time. And I've been finding it a little bit hard to answer that because I don't feel like I ever really chose it or I don't remember choosing it. Perhaps the best way to explain my choice is with this image from the photographer Alan Grinberg, who lives in Pacifica and was kind enough to let me use this in my conclusion in the book. He took this during the King Tides a couple years ago. So I wrote this book for the same reason that I wrote How to Do Nothing, which is that I needed it. In this case, as a person who feels crushed by the pressure between now and not now. It's true that I have a cerebral interest in time. I think most of us do. But with that alone, I never would have written this. Um, I never would have tried to write my way out of a bind that felt very real. This book is my sincere attempt to recover an appetite for the future. And someone who lives squeezed between daily time scarcity, climate despair, and the knowledge of their own mortality. In the introduction, I call it my panoramic assault on nihilism. <laughs> Um, so, and the title Saving Time has a double meaning. I want to think through how more people could have more time, by which I really mean more control over their time, but I also want to think about saving senses of time, the same way you would think of a seed bank. And one very significant sense of time that I want to save is time that's not simply additive, but alchemical, where no moment is the same and each is capable of transfiguring the past all at once. And in this moment in which so much seems deadening and inevitable, it's that quality of possibility that I'm trying to save. So I said that my work is based in the Bay Area. Um, that is more literally the case with this book than How to Do Nothing. I organized the book chapter-wise as a one-day out-and-back road trip from Oakland to the Pacific Coast and back. And then each of the chapters is set in a location where that type of time or understanding of time is especially visible. So just to run through them really quickly, the industrial time I talk about at the Oakland port, problems with time management self-help and a traffic jam on 880, probably very familiar to some of you. I feel like people in New York will not understand that. Um, a leisure at the Stanford Shopping Center and a nearby open space preserve. <laughs> Ecological and geological time at a beach in Pescadero. 
climate dread at the part of Pacifica that is especially hard hit by erosion, different communal languages of time at the Prelinger Library. Finally, the time of one's own life, i.e. mortality, at the Chapel of the Chimes and its neighboring cemetery. And in doing this, I'm making use of a very old story technology, one where it's easier to remember the different parts of the story later if you can travel the route in your head. So like cynically, I'm just trying to help you remember what was in the book. But I also wanted it to be a trip where you return to the beginning because I'm very obsessed with the feeling of returning to something with new knowledge, a process that also represents time and the fact that we are always learning and experiencing, even if we think we're in the same place. And I also did this to show the reader that we can easily find material evidence of the seemingly abstract and historical ideas I'm describing, that we can find them in the concrete every day, uh, that time and history have made the material and cultural world we live in, and that by extension, what we do now is historical. So I don't have time tonight to take you on this entire road trip. I thought I would just drop into a couple of points along the way and hopefully inspire you to take the entire journey on your own. So as I said, the very first chapter begins at 7 a.m. Um, at the Oakland port. And so there's sort of like italicized interludes in the book that imagine that you and I are in my car from high school, <laughs> which has no aux input or power windows or anything. It's just, very, just a car. So, and that we're like, you know, driving through the Oakland port, thinking about industrial time. I chose this setting because it gives us such a striking view of standardization and by extension, um, it's kind of a visual metaphor for how time appears when we think of time as money. Like the container system, the standardization of time and the notion of equal interchangeable hours that could be run through a system happened in a very specific moment involving commerce, colonialism, and the need to measure others' labor. And I think it's worthwhile keeping this history in mind when we consider the current stickiness of the notion that time is money. There's a really incredible book called The Colonization of Time by Giordano Nani that I cite uh, quite a bit of in that chapter, where he describes the encounter between the British colonial sense of time and the existing understandings of time among people living in colonized places. And this encounter was not a straightforward takeover. Um, you get situations where, for example, the Sabbath punctuated week only extends as far as the audible range of the mission bell. But I want to read a little excerpt that Nani, uh, Nani gives us from a late 19th century publication. It's from a South African mission, and it's essentially a piece of cultural propaganda about time. Okay, it says, How much have you in the bank? Not the savings bank, though it would be a good thing for you to have a little there too. This bank is a better one. Perhaps you have nothing to put in the savings bank, and you think you have nothing to put in any other. You are wrong. You may be putting money in every day. Did you ever count up how much or how little you had got there in the bank of which God is the manager and over whose counter pass the well-used moments of each day and all the good things a man thinks or says or does? We speak of spending time. Time spent does not go into the bank any more than money spent, but every moment you use well for God you put into the bank. I would advise you to all to put something in, to put in all you can, for the bank gives good interest. <laughs> um, so I think this excerpt kind of gives you some idea of how deeply the notion of time as money is tied to pretty specific ideas about labor, morality, and, and this idea of taming the uncivilized. In tracing this history, I also cite the work of Caitlin Rosenthal, who has researched early examples of what we would now call spreadsheets, including pre-printed ones that were used to record the labor of people enslaved on American and Caribbean plantations. And for Rosenthal, there is an uncomfortable link between this history and modern management practices. In an interview with the Harvard Business Review, she pointed out that many of the men running these plantations were absentee owners. They lived overseas. And she says, uh, quote, so you imagine them in London getting reports in the mail about their plantations and just crunching the numbers over lunch, not so different from modern board members. It's so easy for someone at a long distance to forget about the humanity of the labor. And then, of course, this abstraction of time uh, and measurement of labor continued with um, Taylorism in factory labor, a way of measuring and systematizing work to make it go faster. This graphic is from an article called The Stopwatch as Inventor in a 1916 issue of Factory Magazine. And you can see how minutely the work is broken down into uh, separate timed actions. And this is my personal favorite. Uh, this is from Harry Braverman's book uh, where he's looking at scientific office management. And this is them timing how long it takes to punch a time card. <laughs> it's very meta. So 
Um, in these examples, uh, what you find is that the history of time management, while certainly innovative, has so often been inextricable from the desire to get more labor out of people in less time. For his part, Taylor had hoped that workers would share in the increased productivity, but that unfortunately is not what seems to have happened. Um, and meanwhile, it continues to morph into new oppressive forms. To some of us, something like Taylorism sounds like something of the industrial past, but it wouldn't to anyone who uses a scanner gun in an Amazon warehouse, works in a call center that uses motivational leaderboards, drives a UPS truck fitted with sensors, or works remotely on a computer that uses employee tracking software unironically named Staff Cop. This is Staff Cop. <laughs> so I end the chapter by comparing the moment, my, one of my favorite movie moments ever, in Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times, where he's strapped into a feeding machine designed to eliminate the factory lunch hour, and he's like abused by this corn cob going into his face. <laughs> with Keiichi Matsuda's 2019 360-degree short film, Merger, in which the lone character is struggling to keep up with her work interface and an evil version of Microsoft's Clippy, which you can see in the background there. Um, she tells us, there isn't always time to eat, but there are so many innovative ways to fuel your body and mind. So besides its survival into the present, the other reason to revisit this history is that it makes it easier to see the ways in which we've internalized this very specific industrial sense of time. This is from Increasing Personal Efficiency, a Prelinger Library find. And it's a 1925 book that attempts to very literally apply Taylor's principles to one's own life and thinking. So in this view, you are both factory owner and factory, and the hours of your life are your material. And I trace this also to the present, specifically to a group of content creators I refer to in the book as productivity bros. Um, this is an image of a product called the Mastery Journal, where you are evidently both master and mastered, logging your progress on 10-day productivity charts. So these and other forms of time management show that the idea is very much still alive, that everyone has 24 fungible hours in a day, and that those who fall behind simply aren't using them in the right way. And that furthermore, life is a zero-sum game where my getting ahead can only mean you're falling behind. Instead, beyond the basic psychological variation in how time feels, the shape of your hours and days so often depends on the same things that govern the landscape of power in our society, Financial latitude, race, gender, ability, zip code, number of children, and other circumstantial factors, from the distance you live from your work, to relationships or lack thereof, to neighbors, to your company or country's sick leave policies. One of the people I spoke to for this book is an admin for a working mom's uh, Facebook group, and I thought it was very telling that rather than follow the advice of time management self-help, which she compared to the financial advice to just not buy that latte, she thought it might be a better idea to get six other moms together and have each one of them make dinner for everyone else one night of the week. Already a tacit acknowledgement of the social nature of time. As long as we continue to subscribe to this notion of individuals with fungible hours in their individual time banks, it's harder for us to imagine this kind of collective liberating of time, whether it's in the hard sense of labor organizing and policy interventions or in the soft sense of how we talk to each other about time. When we remove the grid and the calendar from time, which I simply understand as change and a series of interconnected processes, the temporal landscape turns out to be incredibly rich. But the primacy of this landscape can be a really hard thing to grasp. In chapter four, I present this graph of sundial time versus standardized clock time. And I write, the graph shows both readings of time, yet they are not equal. Sundial time is being described in the terms of clock time, which are the given grounds for comparison. And I would say that much of my project in this book could be described as me trying to flip these two, both for myself and for the reader, to make material, nonlinear signatures of time feel like what time really is. So before this talk, we watched that beautiful piece, The History of the Sky. In the book, I write about doing something similar during the pandemic. Because so much of the social structuring of time was removed or interrupted, my days felt like, as I put it in the book, boxes of time to be filled in my box of a room forever and ever. And in response to the stultifying sameness, I pointed a camera out my window and sporadically took photos of the sky. And I write, time felt the same in my room, but in the photos it rained, it stormed, and the fog rolled in from San Francisco. Sometimes the clouds were enormous and sharply defined, other times distant and wispy. 
Midday, the sky could be a deep, dark blue. In the evening, it would soften to an indescribable shade of something like purple or pink. And as I mentioned earlier, this chapter is sort of imaginatively set in Pescadero. I called the chapter Putting Time Back in Its Place, and it draws on the work of geologists, the philosopher Henri Bergson, and indigenous scholars like Vine Deloria Jr. and Tyson Yucoporta. And in all of those cases, what you really sense is the inseparability of time from space. In this chapter, I use the rock layers of the beach in which time essentially runs sideways across the beach to illustrate what the geologist Marsha Bjornerud calls timefulness. She writes, I see that the events of the past are still present. This impression is a glimpse not of timelessness, but of timefulness, an acute consciousness of how the world is made by, indeed made of, time. And trying to imagine whatever the opposite of fungible time is, I show the reader these beach pebbles, which happen almost mid-paragraph, like words. And I write, look again at the pebbles. Make no mistake, they are neither signs nor symbols of time. No, they really are two things at once. Seafloor from the last ice age and future sand. So beach or no beach, simply making everyday observations of what we consider ecological or geological reveals how intuitive this concrete material sense of time still remains for us. And in fact, I think this is exactly what happened during the pandemic for those whose scale of attention shrunk to their house or their backyard. For example, statistics involving birding, number of birding supplies sold, number of observations logged to sites like eBird and visits to bird webcams um, show that many more people became attentive not only to the daily movements of birds, but also their migrations. Karina Newsom, an ornithologist and one of the founders of Black Birders Week, noted that spring migration coincided with the early lockdowns and that it might be therapeutic to watch the larger rhythm that continued to go on. In our stillness, other movements became more palpable. For me, one important clock ended up being an individual buckeye tree in a park that I always walk through. This tree grows leaves and flowers in the spring and goes dormant in the late summer. Uh, but that procession is uneven across the region, across a grove, across the branches of the same tree, or across the surface of a yellowing leaf. The body of the tree itself is also a record of the past, since the buckeye's ability to go dormant is an evolutionary response to a change in the climate three million years ago. And so I write, what is a clock? If it's something that tells the time, then my branch was a clock. But unlike the clock at home, it would never return to its original position. Instead, it was a physical witness and a record of overlapping events, some of which happened long ago and some of which are still occurring as I write this. And that's, that, those images are also in, in the book. This is also a text exchange from last month when my boyfriend was here and I was in the Santa Cruz Mountains and we're observing that the clock is the same in both places. <laughs> um, okay, so what I just described is something that I describe in the book as unfreezing something in time. Um, I write, if you want to see some time that isn't fungible, just pick a point in space, a branch, a yard, a sidewalk square, a webcam, and simply keep watch. A story is being written there. The story is inseparable from the story of all life, even yours. And while it might be fascinating and enlivening for us to unfreeze things in time, there is also an ethical dimension to doing so. Because to see something as, in, as inhabiting time with you is to consider that it has experience. While researching for this book, I was really floored by a study on something called the lesser minds pro problem. That's a what it sounds like. It's a name for our bias to see the inner lives of other people, especially people we consider to be in outgroups as not, um, not as complex as our own. And so in one of the experiments, people were asked to consider typically dehumanized outgroups such as drug addicts or people without housing. Ordinarily for those participants, thinking about people in those groups wouldn't activate regions of the brain associated with theory of mind. But what the researchers found was that by simply asking the participants whether or not a houseless person would like a certain vegetable, those neural regions became activated. In other words, and in my interpretation, the question about the vegetable presumes a person with preferences and desires, and desire, an attitude toward the future, and a reflection of one's past can only exist in time, the time inhabited by that person. 
This notion of frozenness or unfrozenness has broader implications, namely regarding the climate crisis that increasingly interrupts the human calendar. Just like the concept of time as money is a political history, so too is the division of who and who does not inhabit time, i.e. who has experience and who acts on the historical stage. The Jamaican theorist Sylvia Winter has written about how the Western notion of man versus nature defined man against colonized people who were characterized as timeless, backward, or less progress, part, part of the similarly timeless landscape, um, and in my formulation, frozen. In that same book I mentioned earlier, The Colonization of Time, the author quotes a letter from the daughter-in-law of a British missionary in what is now South Africa, in which she writes, you must know that today we have unpacked our clock and we seem a little more civilized. For some months we have lived without a timepiece. John's chronometer and my watch have failed and we have left time and been launched onto eternity. However, it is very pleasing to hear tick, tick, tick and ding, ding. For me, this suggests an important connection, that the same framing that has allowed us to juice the supposedly inert, non-experiencing natural world dry is the same one I mentioned earlier in which laborers have been juiced of their supposedly fungible lifetimes. It also explains why we feel that there is cultural human time which moves forward and makes things, and natural non-human time which is cyclical and insubstantial. It's, that, it's an echo of that supposed hierarchy uh, of the eternity and tick, 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 and ding, ding. As Bill McKibben has pointed out, the irony of this conceptual divide is that what is thought of as human cultural time actually can't keep up with the changes in what is thought of as non-human time. In that vein, I argue a lot in this book for non-human subjecthood, and that's one of the reasons I rely so much on indigenous scholarship. Like those scholars and like McKibben, my reasoning is partly practical. I really don't believe that a true holistic response to either time scarcity or the climate crisis is possible without such a change in perspective. But I also want this for us, both in How to Do Nothing and in Saving Time, I'm really bothered by this idea, and very much informed by my own experience, of people chasing achievement but really wanting meaning and connection among and beyond the human. These are two little diagrams that I find myself drawing different versions of every single year. <laughs> um, and they maybe give you a sense of what extension means in the title of my last chapter, Life Extension. That chapter, which is really less about mortality than what it means to me to be alive, starts with a story from a children's book my mom uh, got from a garage sale. It's haunted me ever since I read it. <laughs> also, thanks to my mom for scanning it. But basically, a witch visits an impatient young boy and gives him a ball with a golden thread. And if he pulls the thread, time goes faster. And she advises him to use it wisely, as the thread can't be put in any more than time can go backward. Predictably, he pulls it too often. Impatient to go home from school, impatient to marry his crush, impatient to get a job. Luckily for him, and because this is a children's story, the witch returns to the old man, takes back the ball, and lets him start over again. But in our case, no matter how many dividends our time pays, we do not get that chance. As an answer to this anxiety, I look to crip time, a term used in disability studies, to describe the tension between a disabled person's temporality and the clock-based industrial timetables of modern-day society. For someone who fundamentally cannot buy into the system of thinking because it was not built for them, it is perhaps easier to imagine the goal of life as something other than performance and accumulation. There's a really beautiful chapter on crip time in this book, What Can a Body Do by Sarah Hendren, one of my favorite contemporary writers and thinkers in which she reflects on her experience raising a son with Down syndrome. The way people equate her son with his diagnosis, in a way seeing him also outside of time, illuminates for Hendren how economic productivity and a life lived along normative timetables and milestones are so deeply entwined with the idea of human worth. But her son also demonstrates to her a different way of being. Seeing how Graham, her son, is categorized but also seeing his self-understanding and his sources of joy is what allows Hendren to question everything about time we've come to take for granted. She asks, how long does it take, or should it take, for a body to move through the world, the 40-plus hour work week, the demands of caregiving for ailing parents, the daily commute of the body with its changing needs over the lifespan, a pregnant body, an aging one, a body in recovery after a bad injury, 
Is the clock of industrial time built for bodies at all? The idea of crypt time prepares us to move from thinking about achievement to thinking about encounter. I'll never forget the elderly woman who called in to a radio show I was on talking about how to do nothing. She was recently disabled and had been sitting in her backyard, watching the birds, and in some cases, even having them land on her. And she said it was one of the happiest times in her life. I too can attest to this phenomenon as a related experience is almost entirely responsible for my interest in birds, something that's now very present in all of my work. In the book, I describe a day in 2013 when I just pulled an all-nighter on an art project and had just come home from my day job. I was lying on my couch, immobilized by my own exhaustion, with my eyes pointed up out the window at the top of a redwood tree. I was so tired that, in fact, I thought I was hallucinating pears growing at the top of the tree until I realized that they were birds with yellow bellies all facing into the sun. And this sight made my burnout from work flip over into a different kind of tiredness, an open-mouthed state of wonder that the poet Peter Hanke calls tiredness that trusts in the world. What I had seen were cedar waxwings, who are locally nomadic and follow the fruiting of berries, an expression of time in their own way. The sight was a gateway for me that has remained open ever since. I write, I remember that vision on the couch so clearly, not just because it was the beginning of an abiding interest in birds and their territories. In a more general sense, I remember it as a kind of opening onto infinity. Through that opening, I saw something else, someone else, beckoning from a different version of time and space, where suburban gardens, far-flung wintering grounds, summer and winter were all intertwined. And I, I later go on to suggest that maybe the point isn't to live more in the literal sense of a longer or more productive life, but rather to be more alive in any given moment, a movement across rather than shooting forward on a narrow, lonely track. And on that note, there's something I think is implied in a lot of this book, but that I regret isn't said more outright, um, and which I think is especially appropriate to mention here at The Long Now. I am very fortunate to have a handful of friends in their 60s and 70s. I am also fortunate to be friends with a couple of my own former students. And the more time I spend with these friends, the more I let go of the idea that generational concerns are inherently unrelated. Yes, things have changed. Yes, in this country, older generations hold much of the wealth. But I think an overemphasis on generational barriers makes it less obvious how people in every group might harbor values that have cut across time and history. And it obscures some of the possibilities that come with a collective memory and a set of experiences that are longer than any of our individual lifetimes. In the chapter of my book on communal languages of time, I quote quite a bit from Process World, a magazine active in the 80s and 90s that was started by a group of San Francisco temp workers concerned about the alienation of modern work and life. And what I especially love is the letters section, which acts almost like a proto-message board, allowing readers to discover each other and the idea that they are not alone in their dissatisfaction, the so-called honor of getting to sell the hours of your life for something so meaningless. One of the letters starts out, Jump in Jehoshaphat, there's intelligent life out there. <laughs> um, and I think this kind of discovery can happen not just across space, but across time. My friend Chris Carlson, one of the editors of Process World, recently wrote in an essay about his hopes um, in the 1980s for the magazine, adding, our ideas in our community that shared our sensibility didn't really grow much. Perhaps our role was to carry a radical thread from the decades that preceded us to the decades that would follow. I was so excited by this sentence that I immediately emailed Chris to tell him how I'd woven process world quotes together with contemporary organizing among international gig workers, but also how I expected my readers, including a fair share of people younger than me, to easily recognize both the fury and the sense of humor that comes through in process world. That's what I saw as my role, and it would be impossible not only with these past expressions, but with institutions like the Internet Archive and the Prelinger Library, who make them available to the present. I think the most important technology we've ever had is the story, but stories only work through the telling. Um, so I'm just gonna end by reading an excerpt from that same chapter that Process World shows up in. And just to give a little uh, bit of context because it comes up in the excerpt, I use a term, familect, which I learned about from my friend Helen. So familect just means the specific words or phrases that are uh, used hyper-locally within a, a 
small group of people, so it's like a dialect, but even smaller. Earlier this year, I was in the garden of a septuagenarian friend while she was planting some beans. She told me that they were descended from beans she'd gotten 20 years before, from somewhere she couldn't quite remember, maybe Home Depot, and could never find again. At the time, she'd shared the beans with friends, all of whom loved them and couldn't find them anywhere else either. But some friends let the bean pods mature and dry out, saving the beans and giving them back to her. She had no idea how many people had them by now and speculated that this line of beans could have spread across the entire country. As she planted them, we mused that although there had been a give and take between her and her friends, it was not exactly transactional. She wasn't taking back the things she had given them, though the two were certainly related. She moved on to some lettuce beds, telling me I should take some lettuce. I thought she was just being polite, but she told me that she actually needed to get rid of the outside leaves so the inside leaves would keep growing before the plant reached maturity. She was constantly giving bags of lettuce to people, she said. This simple gesture and the story of the beans made me realize how broken my mental mechanisms were for thinking about anything beyond the transactional exchange. In part, this is because I've never lived anywhere I could garden. I'd sort of forgotten that a plant keeps growing, assuming that more lettuce for leaves for me would mean fewer lettuce leaves for her. Would it be possible to not to save and spend time, but to garden it by saving, inventing, and stewarding different rhythms of life? And wouldn't this simply be an acknowledgement and use of the chronodiversity that already exists for all of us on some level, individually and communally? If time can be gardened, then it's also possible to imagine its increase in ways other than individual hoarding. Before I left my friend's garden, she gave me some scarlet runner beans from a bean farm that no longer exists. They're now sitting on a metal shelf next to the store-bought beans that Joe and I, like many other people, started stocking up on during the pandemic. I've had so much time to look at and think about beans, but I had never considered what they actually were. I googled, can you plant store-bought beans? And the answer was yes. <laughs> Those things in the bags, they weren't just commodities. Sure, you could eat them, but they weren't endpoints and they weren't dead. At least some of them contained something the possibility of future beans. As I told more friends this, about this story, it became an inside joke, a new familect. Time is not money, time is beans. <laughs> <laughs> it was about as serious as many jokes are, which is to say about half. Saying it meant that you could take time and give time, but also that you could plant time and grow more of it and that there were different varieties of time. It meant that all your time grew out of someone else's time, maybe out of something someone planted long ago. It meant that time was not the currency of a zero-sum game, and that sometimes the best way for me to get more time would be to give it to you, and the best way for you to get some would be to give it back to me. If time were not a commodity, then time, our time, would not be as scarce as it seemed just a moment ago. Together, we could have all the time in the world. Thanks. Thank you so much. Um, I think the rest of you can kind of see how, when I started reading this book, I couldn't stop underlining things. I love the way you ended there. It kind of redefines what a bean counter is <laughs> <laughs> in this mechanized version yeah. of human and commodified time. So it's, yeah. uh, it's yeah, a yeah. perfect, uh, a perfect thing. And I, I just I wanted to kind of loop back around to just the way that you work, and and you you were kind of holding still and observing around you long before the rest of us were forced to. <laughs> um, yeah. And um, you know, how did you? How do you think you came to this idea of of, of observing the things that are closest to us? <sighs> I, that's a good question. This is a very weird answer, but my, my mom, um, my mom does respite care for, uh, foster families, which is basically like you're a designated babysitter. And she says that she's noticed something with the babies that she takes care of. That was also true of me, which is that she said, if you push the stroller next to a shrub, like the babies will just like, they'll just get in it, you know, like they want to grab it and like put their face in the shrub, you know? Um, and I think like when I was like really little, my mom actually just noticed that I liked, like I was happier if I was outside. Um, like just looking at stuff, like things 
that were very immediate. And she was also always taking me to live theater because she wanted me to be in theater. Um, <laughs> um, but Please run off and join the circus. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think like I, like I think it just goes way back. Like I think I grew up like largely thanks to her, like with the assumption that there's going, there's something interesting in front of you. Like I just assume that, like I don't yeah. feel like I need to like wait for it, you know? Yeah, we've also been taking care of a little baby and like babies are perfect naturalists and we just kind yeah. of beat it out of them for the rest of our lives. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know it's funny cause I, I, I think I, I said in an interview recently that like the last time people, many people like remember the sense of curiosity that like I am clearly obsessed with is childhood. But then later I was thinking about it and like, that's not true. I have friends who have children and I think you re-experience it through children. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Watching them watch the world is kind of one of the most magic things. Yeah. Um, you know, I've always, as, as long as I've worked on this project uh, about time and uh, I've kind of shied away from dealing with time front from the front, like the way you have. And it's always kind of so daunting to me. Um, and so I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering how, how you decided that it was, it was, it was something that you could take on. And, uh, it's like, it's just, it's always so daunting yeah. to me. <laughs> yeah, it is. I know. I was like, why didn't I, why didn't I write a book about table tennis? Like, just, <laughs> like but then I know that I would find a way to make that really complicated. So like, it's, yeah. Um, I, so, um, if anyone here has read How to Do Nothing, there's a part of How to Do <laughs> Well, there's a part of How to Do Nothing where I mentioned being in a cabin with no reception, and the, and I didn't um, really notice this until I found my notes way later. What I was doing in that cabin was I was writing the I was trying to write the proposal for How to Do Nothing, while I was in the cabin, and I found it and I had divided the paper in two, and it was How to Do Nothing in Space and How to Do Nothing in Time, and then I think I just completely forgot about like that like structure or maybe I just I. You know, I think the way it turned out ended up being much more about space because there's a lot of bioregionalism and sort of like local ecology in that book. So in a way, I think maybe there, it was just kind of like a seed that just didn't really, it was just there for a while. Um, and then, so those ideas were there. And then after How to Do Nothing came out, like a lot of feedback that I heard had to do with time. Like people who were like, I agree with these ideas, but I don't like, what am I supposed to do about the time? I don't have time. Um, and I like, I really didn't like that really bothered me because <laughs> I like, I didn't have a good answer to that. Um, and so I think that that combined with like what that, that sort of seed from earlier kind of those things came together. It's also just like, I think I similarly to observing things, like, I think I like to write about things that are very immediate, like combining, you know, things that are, that are from, you know, academic disciplines and like other research with just like the things that you experience every day or the things that I experience every day. And so like time is just very familiar. It's like you can't get away from it. And so I right. think it, it appeals for that reason. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting, like at least before the pandemic, you'd often ask people, you know, how are they doing? And, and the, the answer is always some form of I'm really busy. Um, and this kind of fetishization with being yeah. overly busy. Um, yeah. And I think the idea that you have kind of given people an excuse to to not want to be busy uh, and that slowing down is actually, a, and, ha and giving yourself the time and obviously having the privilege to have that time, um, which I think you, you mentioned in the book too, that time can often be a privilege as well. But um, can you say a little bit more about our personal time and, and, and our, the way that we think about it that way? Yeah. Um, so in that same chapter where I, I talk about the increasing personal efficiency book with the amazing weather map um, and the productivity bros, um, I, I, um, something that I found very useful in writing that and that's mentioned in the chapter is this um, there's a paper by the sociologist Hartmut Rosa where he describes a hypothetical character named Linda. Um, and Linda is um, like a, she's a university professor. She's, um, she's very busy. She's always, she just describes, she's running around. She doesn't have enough time for her students. She doesn't have enough time for her colleagues. She doesn't have enough time to like make dinner, go to the gym. And like, she just feels like a failure because she's always running out of time. And then, and he says like the only way that she would um, experience like peace is if she went to a cabin with no reception. Um, and, so, and I was like reading this and feel, and then he says, isn't this all kind of her fault though? Like, didn't she bring this on herself? And I felt like so like attacked by this because um, I was like, I'm Linda. Um, and so like, I, I kind of like use that to like make this distinction between like Linda's and non-Linda's, but then there's like a gray area. 
But I, I think it's a really, I think that's kind of what people were trying to get at, like when they were responding to how did you not think, there's a difference between someone who truly has no control over their time and someone who feels like they have no time. And again, I realize like there is a gray area, but like the, you know, for someone who actually structurally doesn't have control over their time, like the answer does not lie with them using their time better. Like as the working mom admin, like, you know, was telling me, um, but then there's like another situation where you just have someone who's deeply internalized that like busyness is good. Um, and that like more, like m you just need more all the time. You always need to be getting more, more friends, more achievements, like more, you know, um, and that Linda character like needs to just chill. <laughs> like basically <laughs> go to the cabin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think I, I say like experiment with what feels like mediocrity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think what's amazing is that, you know, time has become, you know, it's both the most valuable commodity that we have, and it's also the most easy to waste, or at least what we call wasting, right? And so this, um, you mentioned banking time and the way that, also the way that Western cultures, native cultures, and plants and animals, you know, may or may not follow Gregorian calendars or 12-hour or time, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the way other cultures and animals are perceiving time. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just like, it's almost like you, like when you look at like the history of how time became standardized and, and like the idea of like the man hour and all that, it's so narrow, like when you actually look at the history of it, so like contingent, that it's sort of like everything else around that. Um, it, be, it just starts to look like a little sliver instead of like the sort of the norm. And then there's like this exotic way of like seeing time, you know, like it's actually the exotic way of seeing time. Um, and so I think like something that I really admired in the examples um, that I drew from Sand Talk, which is the book by Tyson Yunkaporta, and also examples from Vine Deloria Jr. are like, there's this um, really exquisite sense of timing, which I think is like a very, like, to contrast timing with like the idea of uniform time. Like timing suggests that there's a right time. That, so not all time is the same already. And then there's a there's the best time to do something. And so like I think, you know, obviously in indigenous cultures, there's like a deep atten attentiveness to like what is happening at any given moment. And like you have to do this thing at this time. And the way that you know this that this is gonna happen is that this other thing is gonna happen. And they're all just like so deeply intertwined. It's sort of like everything is a clock almost. Um, and so I think like that's uh that feels much more, I don't know, like it's real, it's it's based on things that are actually like materially happening in the world. It's not abstract at all. Yeah. 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 yeah I think one of the things that you you also get to is this idea that of different cycles of you know geologic time or or climate time you mentioned. And I think one of the the problems that we humans have with thinking about things like the climate crisis is that they're, they're out of scale with what we have been taught to value in terms of time as being much faster moving or much more proximate. Yeah. Um, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I talk about uh, that horrible day uh, with the red sky, which I'm sure many of us remember um, in chapter five and, uh, and this that I, I kept having these nightmares about like a wall of fire coming and that it was like, it was very uniform the way that it moved. It was like, it's coming for you. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's like, it's a, like a video play head's just going and there's nothing you can do about it. And that's a very like linear and uh, like declinist way of looking at it that I definitely had. Um, and so I think one of the, you know, as I kind of tried to like pick that apart in that chapter, I really came to appreciate the different scales that everything related to climate happens on. Like some things happen very quickly, some things happen very slowly, some things are hyper-local, some things are widespread, and some things can go backwards. Like things can be restored, you know, like things can also like get locally get better. Um, and so like when you, like, it just really helped me to stop seeing it as this like, you know, and like, and just kind of like, consider myself as like always every day being in the midst of it. Like every day I just wake up, I'm in the midst of it, I have to respond. And like, that's it, it's just day after day. Yeah. Um, Lesia, I believe it is, uh, asks, um, how does your relationship with time that you kind of point out as deep, as your reading is kind of deep and complex, influence the other relationships in your life? Um, so it's had this one really strange effect, um, which I did not expect at all, which is that I, for most of my life until recently, have identified as a loner. 
Um, like I was definitely felt that way as a teenager. It's like writing in my giant journal, you know, <laughs> like everywhere. Um, and just like very Daria kind of vibes. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then I just kind of carried that with me and I, um, and anyone here who's a perfectionist knows that there's something very isolating about perfectionism. It's like you alone, you gotta, you have to do it all yourself and it has to be perfect. Um, and I think as I, as a weird side effect of me talking about, you know, not wanting it to be my time and your time and our time, um, I recently realized that I am no longer a loner. <laughs> like, I, I, I don't, I'm not saying that like I'm around people more necessarily, like maybe I am, but, but I don't identify as a loner anymore. I, I identify as like a piece of different relationships with different people. And I feel much less um, selfish about my time. Like, uh, even if I'm like working on something, like I, I just realized like how much of the work gets done in conversations with people. And so I'm, I feel like I, I really, that, that idea of it not being a zero sum game, like it really, affected me and like I, I don't I don't see myself as this like isolated thing anymore right yeah. well and I love how you talk about how you know uh, traveling a you know through the circuit of the Bay Area is can be tied to the stories that you tell and, and I remember the story of native storytelling where somebody was in the back of a pickup truck and then the, na oh, yeah. the natives who were yeah, in the yeah, back yeah, of yeah. the truck yeah. kept starting stories and then starting a new one because yeah. the truck was truck moving was much faster fast. yeah. than, than a human would yeah. in there. And so they couldn't, yeah. I, they couldn't separate the time and the, and yeah. the space. At yeah. All, which I because used. you need the landmarks to right. tell the story. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of, you did the same thing in your book, which I thought was really beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I did. And that was like, I, I knew about those kinds of examples. And I also, uh, um, the partner of the person who gave me the lettuce, um, he and I went on a really long walk one time in the town in the Santa Cruz mountains we had this amazing conversation and it was very long and I, I wished that I could take notes. <laughs> oh, that'd be weird, weird to do. But, um, I, I realized I could remember it later if I just went on the walk in my head. Yeah. So I was like, oh, let's we'll just do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's the old trick. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's good apropos for this next question. Um, do you have any inner conflict with living in a city? Uh, if so, can you share, a bit about how you reconcile the kind of beauty of being at a cabin with no reception, oh, yeah. but also clearly you're, you're so very tied to urban culture as well. Yeah. Um, I think that I, that would be a really big problem for me if I lived in maybe any other city. Um, I live in Oakland. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I remember actually when I started birding, I looked at a map. Oh, it was a book of maps of California and different um, like species diversity of like different groups of species. Um, and so there was one that was like bird diversity and it was all so clustered. Like it was the, the, the color was like very dark um, in, in Oakland. Um, and I remember like realizing that because I had no context, I just thought that there were this many birds everywhere. <laughs> um, but like, like, no, I just like sort of came into awareness like in a place that happens to have a lot of birds. Um, and so part of the reason I like, I, I, it's sort of reconciled for me is that I live somewhere that has, you know, a, it has parks and there's just like a lot, I, like when I get asked if I go bird watching, I, I don't go bird watching. I'm just always bird watching because if I leave my apartment, I will see birds. Like I see lots <laughs> of birds. I saw them today. Like, you know, um, so I think, uh, you know, I like to make my occasional trip to the mountains, um, which we're also very fortunate to live like pretty close to the Santa Cruz mountains. So I've gotten, or I've gotten around that problem that way. I think, I, I don't know. I don't know what I would do if I lived somewhere else. Yeah, <laughs> can't move. <laughs> nice, but I think, you know, I mean, the other thing that we have here in the Bay Area is obviously this kind of, uh, and even some of the founders of Long Now were uh, some of the people that helped design the first spreadsheets and things that you kind of mentioned in mm -hmm. here that have driven us into kind of commodification of time. And obviously the, the, the culture of the way we run companies here is, is, is also about um, not only compre compressing time, but also this idea that there's an infinite scaling that's possible. Um, but I, I, I think you get to this a little bit and kind of the, that's, we can't just scale everything in all directions as, as humans all the time. And we have to kind of pick a right size of things. Um, so I wonder if you talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, um, there's a, I think it's 
Daniel Wildcat, who's an indigenous author that I cite in the Putting Time Back in Its Place chapter, um, where he he's sort of he says that he wonders like what what would happen if we were more aware of the personality of places that like each place has a personality. Um, and as someone who grew up in, um, San Jose, like Cupertino, San Jose with lots of, uh, anonymous shopping centers, um, like that where everything sort of like all of the difference seems to have been paved over. I recognize that it's like hard, um, in some places to see the personality or the character of a place, but I am very enchanted with this idea that no place is the same. Like the same way that no moment is the same, like no place is the same. And so I think there's like some, and that, that's what gives meaning to a place. And so I think like anything that, anything that can allow us to be more attentive to that and kind of collect things around the, the characteristics and the personalities of places is very compelling to me. Uh, and Kristen asks, uh, what do you see as part of composing and driving the human compulsion to capture times? This kind of goes back to your for previous book of that we seem to want to capture moments in time with cameras and and oh, yeah, yeah. making a tweet about a thing rather than just sitting there and experiencing it. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't see that as a... I think it's very understandable. It's like time is always slipping through your fingers. You want to grab onto it. Like, what could be more human than that? You know, um, I mean, as someone who uh, has always written a lot in a journal um, since I was a child, I have at times asked myself, like, if I should just stop writing and go outside and, like, do the things that are then being written about. <laughs> like, like, what's the, what's the like, right. yeah, uh, what's the divide there? Um, and Barbara Ehrenreich, who wrote um, Natural Causes, I can't remember the subtitle, but it's really good. It's, like, Killing Ourselves to Live Longer, Epidemic of Wellness, that's a long, really good subtitle, and it's a grim reaper running on a treadmill. Um, my, uh, my agent told me that she wanted originally to call it old enough to die, and they wouldn't let her call it that. <laughs> but, um, that wasn't going to fly off the shelves. Yeah, yeah. no. Um, <laughs> she does use that phrase somewhere in the book, though, I think. But anyway, she, uh, that book is an amazing kind of examination of that, like what is the calculus of like how much time should you put into trying to have more time, you know? And like, at what point, like, you know, don't you need to eventually ask the question of like what it's all for? Right. Um, and so I think like that's, I just think it's very natural. Like I have that, like you, everyone want, if you're, especially if you're like enjoying your life, you like want more of it and you want to have more of it, like have more like evidence of it. And it's, there's something very bittersweet about the idea of having a really lovely experience that's just gonna be over. Like it's just gonna be gone and like you don't have any. Truly ephemeral. Of it. Yeah, but yeah. then at the same time that gives it so much meaning. So yeah. Yeah. Um, this is a good segue into Noah's question, which is uh, has researching for and writing this book changed your feelings around aging and mortality? I know your last chapter is kind of about this to some extent. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um Yeah, I mean it's, it doesn't make me like it doesn't it doesn't make me less uh, afraid of my own death, I guess. Um, I, but I do think that um, it has, and it, it's partially as a result of writing this book, but also, as I mentioned, having friends who are older, um, like it has allowed me to like rest more in the time that I'm in, like the part of the, my life that I'm in. Cause like, you know, the, my lettuce friend is twice my age. Um, and like, I see her see where I am and she just sees all this time in front of me. And like, right. I just feel like it's today and I need, you know, and I'm probably thinking about like the past week and maybe the next week, you know, but like, she sees me as like situated in the middle of something. And then if I see myself from her perspective, I'm like, oh, I need to really like live this cause I'm not going to get another chance, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, uh, we have another question that's along that lines of, you know, what, what nuggets of hope might you give to individuals stuck and paralyzed by the isolation and individualization, uh, which is reinforced to us in the way that kind of time is forced on us at this point? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, like I said, those diagrams that I showed, I, I, draw, I feel like I draw them over and over again. I always think it's a different diagram, but it's the same one. Um, and I think that if you, it's hard uh, because everything about our culture really wants to reinforce the boundaries around yourself. 
But if you can try to like let go of that um, and really like shift your focus from these like supposed individual entities to ties between them, like what happens when you're with a friend and like you, you and friend combined, like that is something in and of itself. Um, and there's, there's an exchange that's happening in there, like the, be you know, the beans going back and forth. Um, I think like things like asking for help is like just, if you're, you're having a problem as an individual and you ask someone for help, like that is in, in the zero sum, like kind of zero sum game view, that's, you're asking someone to give you some, like they'll have less, but that is actually how most like friendships are built is like you ask someone for help and they help you and they want to help you. And like, it's understood that you will then help them. So I think like try, it's hard. Like I said, it's, we're so, you know, um, used to thinking of like not wanting to, you know, bother other people or like, I'm just going to like handle my stuff and like you handle your stuff. But I think if you kind of start to think like what, what um, is possible between me and blank, like other person, like place, you know. Well, I think you get to this in a lot of ways, um, this idea of maybe an attention economy that's different than an empathy economy, um, where you know it's less about how much attention we can get for ourselves or give to something, but more about how much empathy and, and, and feeling we can give to something. But I th that was kind of one of the things that struck me as reading this, just like hit me really hard. Like, yeah, we need more empathy and less trying to argue over attention. Um, yeah, I mean, I just think about the difference between um, like getting a lot of engagement on a post online versus like your friend wrote you a letter <laughs> and you sit down and you read the letter. It's from one person, yeah. you know, like that feels so different. Um, and it's like, and it's because they wrote it for you. Um, it's, it's like, I had, I had a friend make me a podcast once just, just for me. <laughs> <laughs> it was great, you know? Um, what a luxurious thing. Yeah, right? it yeah. had a whole part at the end that was just like birds in Prospect Park, like amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, right, and I think, you know, your kind of definition of time that you mentioned at the beginning that, you know, it's this thing that bubbles up and, and is all around us and rather than a thing that we, that is washing over us or moving past us, um, I think is a, that's a liberating way to think about time in a lot of ways it gives it gives people a lot more freedom I think yeah and I do think it works against that isolation um there's a quote in chapter four from from Henri Bergson who's talking about um he's describing walking through a city that he has been in for many years and it's familiar to him and then he sort of has this realization that everything that he's seeing around him has also aged and he says like like you know he's describing the things and he says like like me they have aged and I like I think about that sentence like so often, like when I'm looking around, like that you're that if everything is frozen in time except for you or for humans or the humans you care about, um, that's a very lonely existence. It's like the other things aren't speaking back to you. They're not with you in time. But if everything, you know, everything like you has aged um, and it's all aging together and it's, you know, everything is affecting everything else like that's. That's not lonely to me, even if I'm alone. Yeah. Right. Nice. Well, I'm going to have one last question, but I do, I do want to remind everyone that your book is uh, for sale up here, and you've pre-signed them all. We, we are going to ask, um, please don't come up and ask for personal inscriptions, and also just give Jenny a little bit of space uh, at the end, because she is about to embark on a bunch of travel, and we don't want, want her to get sick. Get sick. Yeah. Um, but all the, all the books are already signed, so please do grab one. Um, I, I know that you will all really enjoy the book. But um, to kind of wrap up, um, I, I know that you are probably daunted by the fact that your book just came out today and, and it's really great seeing how much praise it's getting and that you're probably going to be asked to give lots and lots of talks like this. So we're so glad to have you at the beginning of it. But I'm wondering if you, uh, if you have thoughts on, on already on maybe what you're going to be working on next. Yeah, so it's uh, another thing that kind of naturally grows out of the last thing. You can't, there's no way that you can think that much about time and not end up thinking about memory. But memory is not really, it's not really treated in the book. I mean, I, I am sort of arguing that like rocks have memory and like, you know, experience is memory. But, um, but memory specifically is very interesting to me now. And also what counts as memory. Like I'm reading or rereading uh, Ed Young's book right now, um, An Immense World, which is about animal senses. 
and he has this description of uh, what it's like to be a dog and that there's all these, there's, there's a record of all these, the dog is basically reading like texts in the form of smell of all the things that have happened. And so it's like the air is just crisscrossed with these memories, right? Like they're not human memories. So I, I think like the sort of a memory as a trace, like, and the, the fact that there are traces of things happening everywhere, that's what's currently interesting to me. Nice. Well, you, you did a great job of painting time as a palace in this book. And I, the, I think I, would, I can't wait to get into the memory palace with you. So yeah. thank you so much for everything. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for joining us today. This talk, along with her book, will be staying with us for many days to come. If it affected you like it did us, please tell your friends about it. We rely almost exclusively on word of mouth to grow our audience. And so anytime you rate or share the podcast or tell a friend about an episode you've been thinking about, it helps us nurture this long-term thinking community. If you'd like to learn more about our projects, take a deeper dive into our ideas, watch our talks online, or become a member, go to longnow.org. You'll find the full video of Jenny O'Dell's talk and even more resources about long-term thinking. As always, we'd like to thank our speakers, our listeners, our sponsors, and our members. This work wouldn't be possible without you. Today's music comes from Jason Wool, as well as Brian Eno's January 07003, Bell Studies for the Clock of the Long Now. Big thanks to our production team, Daniel Engelman, Justin Oliphant, Andrew Warner, Jacob Cooperman, Shannon Breen, Casey Kripe, and the entire Long Now staff who makes each of these conversations possible. We look forward to talking with you next time. Until then, keep moving patiently, responsibly, and exploring the long view. Thank you.